Будемо захищати нашу державу, тому що наша зброя – це наша правда. Наша правда в тому, що це наша земля, наша країна, наші діти. І ми все це будемо захищати. During the current crisis unfolding in Myanmar, events are happening so fast, it can feel challenging just to keep up with them. And we're working to increase our podcast production to stay abreast of this ever-changing crisis. Besides our podcasts, we encourage you to check out the blogs on our website, insightmyanmar.org, where you can also sign up for the regular newsletter. You can follow our social media as well. Just look for Insight Myanmar on your preferred platform. With that, let's head into our show. Метелики в животі на подвір'ї, великі вологі багряні квіти, снах у неї, що наші закінчується війна. І коли зникає постріл в залу на всі до одного живі повертаються звідти. За вікном у дівчинки розйобаний гастроном, і тумани зранку, ніби розведеним молоком, заливають вирвані з корені качелі і паркомати. В кишенях у неї всі сусідські ключі і брідні монети які розсипаються, дзвонячі, коли вона темними сходами у підвал спускається спати. Що її тримає? Стрічечки, ланцюжки, фотографії, на котрих ще живі її молоді батьки, глибина коріння, пам'ять минулого тетушкіру. І голуби, ніби янголи, злітаються до її вікна і старанно береже її. Все те, що береже вона. Все, у що вона так безнадійно вірить. Here's the translation by Emily Channel Justice. The girl has golden reflections in her head, bells on her wrists, butterflies in her stomach, large flowers damp with crimson in the courtyard. She dreams every night the war is over. And when the evil echo of the shooting ceases, one and all of the living return from here. Outside the girl's window, a shop lies in ruins as the morning fog pours like watery milk around uprooted swing sets and parking meters. The neighbor's keys all jingle in her pockets and small coins spill when she descends the dark stairs to the basement to sleep. What sustains her, ribbons and chains, pictures of parents still young, still living, the roots of memory running deep in the warm skin of the past. Doves, like angels, flock to her window. Everything that she cares for, cares for her attentively. All these things that she believes in, so hopelessly.
Today I'm joined by an expert on Myanmar's political situation as well as an expert on Ukraine's political situation and we're going to be delving into a compare and contrast session uh, particularly with regard to the international reactions to the ongoing crises in both Myanmar and in Ukraine. So Hunter I'll start with you. Can you um, introduce yourself and just give us a, a brief overview of how you think the international community has responded to Myanmar's crisis? Sure. Um, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my, my name is Hunter Marston. I'm a PhD student at Australia National University, where I work on international relations uh, of Southeast Asia. My background is more specifically in Myanmar civil society. I, I first traveled to the country in 2010 doing research for an NGO based in Thailand, um, and then returned in 2012 for a short fellowship in the U.S. Embassy. Um, and I studied Burmese language throughout graduate school at the University of Washington and um, continued to write about Myanmar. And uh, more recently traveled back to the country in 2019, studying fake news, disinformation, and the 2020 election. Um, I think I will sort of leave my own background there, but looking to uh, the situation in Myanmar and the international community's response to the February 2021 coup, um, I think we could note a few things. The Western condemnation was swift, uh, was relatively univocal, and the sanctions that came into place uh while impressive, were probably insufficient to change the junta's uh, calculus and its grip on power. Uh, notably, the United States has um, shied away from sanctioning Myanmar oil and gas enterprise. It has uh, some business interests in the country, including um, oil company Chevron, which continues to operate, although it is trying to divest uh, from its stakes there, working with um, Myanmar oil and gas enterprise. And the United Nations has um, been unable to really forge um, a coherent response given the role of China and, the, and Russia on the UN Security Council. So the UN General Assembly has passed resolutions advocating a non-binding arms embargo, uh, but at the, at the level of the Security Council, we haven't seen any concrete action that would actually hamper the military's hold uh, or ability to control the country and um, to uh, expand sanctions beyond sort of the EU, UK, US, uh, the, the usual list there. Um, ASEAN countries, for their part, that is this Association of Southeast Asian Nations, have been a bit divided uh, based on maritime and mainland Southeast Asia and the democracies and autocracies of the region. So, for instance, uh, Singapore has, has um, been very deliberate in its refusal to impose sanctions on Myanmar. Um, and zooming out just a little bit, Japanese and Korean businesses have been very wary uh, of post-coup um, the business environment due to the political instability, and, and many have withdrawn. But on the whole, uh, Japanese and Korean firms remain engaged in the country. And China, probably Myanmar's most important partner, has uh, essentially adopted a hedging strategy. It was at first uh, cautious to condemn the coup, 
more recently has uh, celebrated Myanmar-China historic partnership and said that no matter what, China is there to support Myanmar. Uh, it's engaged with the resistance uh, groups and the national unity government that formed in the wake of the coup. But at the same time, it's it's kept the military uh, close and I think has been careful to preserve its long-term influence there while not condemning outright the military's violence. So all told, the international community has failed to uh, stand with the United response to the coup, and therefore the military continues to hold power and, and face really little backlash internationally. Okay. So thank you for that. And I'll move now to Emily. Um, same thing, if you could introduce yourself and give your overview of the international community's response to the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm, I'm happy to have you know, interest in this discussion because I think it is really um, striking the the shift in responses. So I'm Emily Channel Justice. I'm the director of the Temerty Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. Uh, by training, I'm a sociocultural anthropologist. I've largely worked on um, protest movements and activism in Ukraine. Uh, my my dissertation research took place in 2013 and 2014 during the Euromaidan protests. So at that time, I was looking at the phenomenon of self-organization, so kind of how um, ordinary people were working together to fill the gaps left by the Ukrainian state, which was at that time incapable of um, of, uh, of meeting people's needs in, in various capacities. Uh, my more recent research has been on internal displacement that has been a problem or an issue for Ukraine since 2014, since the war began. So um, this is really an unprecedented global response. I've been studying basically what we can call the crises that have happened in Ukraine since 2013 and 2014. Um, and while there was a lot of interest in Ukraine in 2014 when protesters overthrew their government and when Russia first invaded, um, as we know, the sanctions in response, the United States sanctions in response to the takeover of Crimea were not substantial at all. Um, and in fact, many of us have been left wondering, you know, if they had been more substantive at that time, could this have been prevented? Um, obviously, we don't know the answer to that question, but now we're seeing a very robust global response that is largely organized around sanctions. Um, these sanctions have included major economic sanctions, so the cutting off of Russian banks, the cutting off of Russian political figures, people who have economic and political power, oligarchs, the sanctioning of Vladimir Putin himself. These have all been um, positions that the United States, as well as the European Union, have kind of agreed to, to all take. Um, those sanctions certainly have had an important impact on what's happening, um, but there remains a lot of, there's a lot of places that they could still go. And, and by that, I mean, many countries in, in Europe are reliant on Russian gas um, to heat their homes. Uh, and they are very hesitant to cut off their reliance on Russian gas. And, and that's frankly a huge problem because as long as the, the gas economy functions, Russia can function. Today, there were some new developments about sanctions that several European countries expelled Russian diplomats. This is in response in particular to the atrocities that were uncovered over the weekend in Bucha and other villages around Kiev. Um, so there is still a ways to go. You know, there's still ways 
ways to increase sanctions, increase the global response. Um, These, again, are all non-military responses. And Ukraine has been clamoring for military aid. Um, They've been asking NATO to intervene to close the Ukrainian sky to protect people uh, on the ground from Russian bombardments. Um, that's that's something that hasn't happened. There's been a lot of disagreement about whether or not it's even a good idea to send decommissioned fighter jets to help Ukraine. Um, and, and the reason is because, of course, Vladimir Putin has made both overt and veiled threats about a nuclear response if there's any Western intervention. So, so I would say, you know, the global response has clearly been more... Um, more more united, more aggressive toward Russia. Um, and still there there is certainly more that, that can be done and then Ukraine is certainly asking for more to be done. Okay, thank you. And you know, as as both of you are speaking, I just hear so many comments, I hear so many statements that just can apply to both of the conflicts. There are so many overlaps despite the, the massive glaring differences. So We'll try to go through it in a in a semi sort of ordered and structured way. I want to touch first on the United Nations, um, both the Security Council and the General Assembly. So, um, quick recap for those who are not United Nations uh, savvy: the United Nations Security Council contains five members who never rotate, and that includes the United States, it includes Russia, and it includes China. Any one of whom can veto a resolution brought to the Security Council. So. Let's, let's start with the easier case. Let's start with a simpler, more straightforward case, and that is Ukraine. Um, Russia being on the Security Council, what has been the buzz or the activity in the Security Council and the very predictable outcome of that, Emily? Well, there's frankly only so much that the Security Council can do because Russia can veto everything. And at this point, China's position has been... Um, I'm not sure. Neutral is not exactly the right word, but because there there has been a lot of <clears throat> evidence that they're taking certain um, Russian narratives and running with those, but they are certainly not going to be willing to go against Russia on any vote from the Security Council. So any security resolution is is simply not going to pass at this point if it benefits Ukraine or if it's in favor of Ukraine in some way. Um. So I, I want to move down to Hunter because I, I the, what what Hunter said specifically about China being hedging their bets, I, I think is a very appropriate way to put it. So what has been uh, the Security Council movement with regard to Myanmar, considering that the junta does not have a permanent seat on the Security Council? Well, the Security Council basically hasn't uh, spent much time on, on Myanmar. Um, the UN General Assembly, there's been more discussion, of course, um, because Myanmar's permanent representative or ambassador to the United Nations and General Assembly is uh, loyal to the national unity government and has actually been vocally critical of the uh, Myanmar military. But as far as the level of uh, the UN Security Council, um, the divisions within the Security Council, uh, again, namely Russia and China, have prevented the body from dealing with uh, the Myanmar junta, uh, largely because... China is an important, uh, the largest investor and trading partner of the country, and Russia is its, uh, I think, its largest arms provider at this point, although uh, China is certainly right up there with it. Because mm. I, I, I do remember there being uh, some actions and some attempts to get any resolution or any document through the Security Council with regard to Myanmar. This would have been probably in about May of last year, and um, and it, it just fell flat, and 
from my understanding, it was Russia and China who just simply were not willing to engage um, with those resolutions. So I, I don't know how deeply you would understand this element of the United Nations. I certainly have no clue what's going on with it, but I'm wondering, do you understand what's going on with the Credentials Committee with regard mm -hmm. to Myanmar? Well, yes, um, I, I can't claim to be, I, I'm definitely not a UN expert here, uh, but the fascinating situation that we find ourselves in now uh, and, and terribly depressing simultaneously is that uh, Myanmar, so the National League for Democracy that was ruling nominated an ambassador to the UN, uh, Chiang Motun, who has been uh, serving for at least five years, as far as I know, um, when the junta took over, uh, they didn't immediately go to change uh, over their entire foreign service that, that extended to uh, ambassadors in the UK and US who have taken, um, you know, independent stands uh, to, to criticize the military. Um, but by and large, um, Myanmar's junta is unable to really do much to recall its foreign ambassadors. So it's tried strenuously to appoint its own uh, replacement to Chiang Tun at the UN. Um, but because Chiang Tun was already credentialed or recognized as the le legitimate representative of Myanmar to the UN, um, the UN uh, had no impetus to immediately make a decision on this. Uh, and for some time it said, we, you know, we will have to wait until our credentials committee meets, um, I think this was September last year when it sort of came to a head. And essentially they kicked the can down the road by saying, uh, you know, the, the standard refrain here from many foreign governments, which is we don't recognize governments, we recognize states. And as such, uh, you know, Chiang Motun was already recognized, so he would continue to be recognized as such, uh, despite Chiang Motun's personal loyalty and views, um, which were very critical of the junta. He's calling for international action against the junta boycott uh, of arms sales to the Myanmar military and has called for support very vocally for the national unity government and the displaced elected leadership of the country. Um, so as far as I know, the credentials committee will have to meet again to decide on this soon. Um, I can't remember when the next date is, but it's a very interesting predicament that the UN finds itself in. And from time to time, we've seen this in history before, for instance, with Afghanistan and the Taliban. Um, I think we're, we're seeing this all over again, but you know, it recurred back in the 90s as well when the Taliban came to power displacing uh, a government in Kabul previously. Um, there are several other countries, I haven't looked at this recently, but there is some historical precedent for this. Um, and the Credentials Committee has never really had an easy time resolving it. But in this case, I think it's especially difficult because um, the uh, National Unity Government, which Xiaomotun has sworn loyalty to, doesn't really have a seat in Naypyidaw. I mean, it, it does not have a seat in Naypyidaw. So the sitting uh, sort of heads of state are, are all now um, scattered in the case of Myanmar's resistance and the military has uh, taken over the institutions of Myanmar state, but uh, are not yet recognized as legitimate representatives of Myanmar. So we have this uh, continued um, dilemma. So c continuing on the theme of um, the Credentials Committee, and this is absolutely a long shot of a long shot, uh, but I, I do remember, Emily, that there was a, 
a, a claim or a, or a plan uh, to assert that when when the Russia that when the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, Russia just assumed the seat of the Soviet Union in the Security Council, uh, and that this was not done in accordance with the the actual. Uh, due process of the United Nations and that Ukraine was going to try and uh, take this argument to the United Nations to have uh, Russia removed from the Security Council based on this. Is uh, is anything happening with that or was that just a flash in a pan idea? I, As far as I know, that's not something that is being taken especially seriously at the UN, although in my opinion it's a legitimate position to take. That's absolutely true that Russia seems to have decided that it was the inheritor of the Soviet seat because it was the first Soviet Republic um, while all the other Soviet Republics got dealt a smaller hand or a worse hand um, by not having the same access to power. You know, that that decision didn't foresee um, the type of, of state that Russia would become. It didn't foresee the, the autocratic regime that would develop. And, and you know, hindsight certainly is twenty twenty in this case. Um, but I see every reason to take President Zelensky's request uh, to, to rethink this seriously. Um, because it, at this point, we do need to ask ourselves, uh, you know, this is a this is state sanctioned atrocities that that some are calling genocide now. I mean, at what point do we say we are not going to stand for a country like Russia being having veto power on the UN Security Council? I, I, it's certainly worth asking the question. Obviously, there are other countries you know that have plenty of power that it's worth asking the question about too. I'm, I'm not saying that that's not the case, but um, you know, President Zelensky is asking us to rethink it. Let's rethink it. Mm. Absolutely. So you've you've used atrocity a few times, and and now you've mentioned genocide. And I know that these are terms that are used daily in the Myanmar context as well. So let's let's turn now to the possibility of uh, judicial intervention and uh, post factum um, judicial processes. So I, I think the Russian case might. I'm not sure. It might be a little bit more straightforward. So we'll we'll start with that one. We have footage, we have photographs, we have evidence of severe violations of civilian law and of military law. We have clear violations of uh, the Geneva Conventions. Um, what is the legal recourse that is available here? Well, it it is both more straightforward and, and not because neither Ukraine nor Russia are signatories or members of the, the International Criminal Court. So it is up to the ICC to potentially uh, pursue a case itself, which which it, it actually has, has expressed interest in doing, and in some cases has already started to do uh, with regard to Russia. Um, so, you know, that in that sense, it is a little bit out of Ukraine's hands, although I will say that the Ukrainian government is doing everything in their power to collect the type of evidence that they think that they would need to support such a case. And that includes not only the footage that you've mentioned, um, but people who are working to take testimonies of witnesses who are gathering that kind of information. Um, and I should add that they're publishing a lot of a lot of information about, for instance, the Russian brigades that were involved in the atrocities in Bucha. That was all published on the... Um, um, 
on one of the government ministries' websites yesterday. So they're doing all they can not only to make sure that that information reaches the ICC, but that it reaches the public, and so that the public outcry against these atrocities um, is is palpable, and so that people can be held accountable because what we understand now um, is that while many people have been kind of calling this Putin's war, um, we know that there are many, many Russians who have made these things happen. Um, And whereas previously the question about justice and holding people accountable was really sort of considered kind of far off, right? Because Putin cannot get arrested by the ICC because he's certainly never going to to leave Russia and Russia's not a signatory member, so they have no requirement to extradite him or anything like that. The only way that Vladimir Putin would end up in a trial at the ICC is if there is an actual turnover of power and whoever gets in power after him does turn him over to the ICC, right? Um, That's the only circumstance in which that can happen. But now all this evidence is showing that it's certainly not just Vladimir Putin who is to be held accountable for these crimes. And so um, I think by doing that, the Ukrainian government is also trying to push toward a broader potential move towards some kind of justice and some kind of accountability that goes, um, you know, they, they are now holding many Russian prisoners of war. The possibility that they might turn those people over to the court, for example, I think is one. So, so it is, you know, I think there's a couple of options. I think the the obvious best case scenario is that is that Putin is on trial at some point, but I think a lot of people know that's not likely. So they're doing basically trying to find other mechanisms to find Russian, you know, hold Russian soldiers, for instance, accountable. Absolutely, and I think there are a lot of parallels to to the Myanmar situation there. So, for example, uh, the case, the ongoing case. Um, between the Gambia and Myanmar with regards to the Rohingya genocide has uh, has continued. And it is in fact representatives from the military who continue to um, put forth Myanmar's case in the International Court of Justice. So starting with, with that, um, Hunter, do you see that as any sort of legitimization of the junta? Does this have long-term ramifications as far as judicial intervention is concerned? Uh, some would certainly make that case. Personally, I, I guess I'm not enough of an expert on international law to say one way or the other. I think the fact that the ICJ is proceeding with this case is significant because the world sees and hears evidence of the military's atrocities against Rohingya. Uh, but of course, the military has continued to deny that uh, any genocide took place and has essentially been Uh, accusing the international community of bias and um, having political motivations for these charges, and has also tried to very bizarrely link the Gambia's case to the OIC, or the Organization for Islamic Countries, uh, in some sort of global conspiracy theory. Now, interestingly, uh, Myanmar is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court, but the National Unity Government has expressed support for a case at the ICC, saying it would cooperate. So the NUG has, at every turn, taken a very strong stance to differentiate itself from the military's position and say, actually, we welcome international scrutiny and international legal or investigations into the military's crimes. So there are potential avenues uh, that would grant the NUG further legitimation or even outright recognition uh, by international bodies that are willing to work with it on such investigations. Uh, The ICJ case has continued to operate with the military's um, uh, 
representatives who are defending the, themselves from these charges, which essentially is in line with, um, ironically, with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's defense at The Hague previously, uh, in which she denied the military's atrocities and really um, took a pro-military stance. So all in all, there's not a whole lot of change there. Uh, but I do see opportunities on the margins for working with the NUG to uh, share further evidence. And then, you know, now that the uh, conflict in Myanmar has evolved to such an extent that we see increased military defections, there are actually military officers or soldiers, uh, rather, who have participated in these crimes in, in Rakhine State who have now volunteered to uh, share testimony, uh, which would be damning of the military's crimes. So I think it's possible that the military's case could unravel at some point, given the sheer abundance of overwhelming evidence that, that makes clear that the military was burning down villages, displacing Rohingya people, and um, other crimes, including murder, uh, rape, and the use of torture. Um, so these massive human rights abuses we may finally see some justice, but it's going to be a very long road ahead. Absolutely. And and I know that even in the Myanmar context, where we have somewhat less um, direct sort of evidence, uh, Dr. Sasa, for example, of the NUG, has since very early days of the revolution been documenting and uh, and has served as a sort of collection point for a lot of people's testimony, for a lot of people's uh, videos and photographs and, and any type of evidence that they can provide um, for, for these atrocities. But I find it interesting that I understand that Russia is not a signatory to the Rome Statute, that Okay, that did not come as a, as a bombshell, but neither Myanmar nor Ukraine is a signatory to the Rome Statute. So is, in the Myanmar context, Aung San Suu Kyi's historical ties to the military and her continued desire to project herself as having that strong connection to the military the cause for Myanmar never signing? Um, that's an excellent question. I, I, I could too, uh, because certainly... Yeah, certainly there were opportunities. I mean, I, I, of course, yeah, 98. So, you know, if you look back at the years of military dictatorship uh, under the Slork and SBDC regimes that preceded Aung San Suu Kyi's eventual turn in power from 2016 to 2021, I suppose there were opportunities, you could say, for Myanmar to sign on. Um, it makes a lot of sense for me that Myanmar would not sign on to the Rome Statute, given, you know, for one, that it continues to use landmines against its own people. Uh, there are numerous reasons why the military would want to avoid uh, any or ceding any ground to international investigative bodies uh, to interfere in what they see as their internal affairs and their sovereignty. Um, of course, Aung San Suu Kyi had an opportunity to sign on to the Rome Statute in uh, her more than five years in power, um, if you count her parliamentary role since um, the by-elections of 2012. However, I, I see there are larger, more deep-seated um, and cynical motivations at play here. Aung San Suu Kyi's overwhelming, overarching goal was to earn the support and trust of the military to further embed, I am partly speaking from her own, um, sort of remarks and record here. I'm not defending her her side or 
person specifically, but if you take her line, she, she was essentially trying to win the military support by not being a threat, by not jeopardizing their interests or encroaching in their sort of strategic affairs. Um, so avoiding signing the Rome Statute would be, could be conceived as one such way to, say, uh, present herself as not a threat to the military's interests. Um, I, I find that you know persuasive, but it, it probably wasn't a priority for the government at the same time. Um, I think the uh, NLD government was focused on uh, rebooting the economy and uh, continuing limited privatization and, and anti-corruption measures after um, decades of military rule and uh, continued military rule essentially under the USDP and even NLD years uh, under the 2008 constitution. So I, I think it makes sense why Aung San Suu Kyi wouldn't sign on to this statute, but at the same time, um, I wonder if anybody had ever actually put on her desk uh, sort of, you know, a briefing about the um, Rome statute in the first place saying, here's a good idea, or this is something to stay away from. It probably wasn't even discussed. Okay. I mean, that's, you know, there's that old adage, never, uh, never ascribe to malice what can be ascribed to stupidity or laziness. And uh, it does hold true. So, but possibly, <laughs> so um, then Emily, same thing. Why um, is is Ukraine not like I see? Ukraine has accepted the um, the the jurisdiction of the court, even though it's not a member of the Rome Statute, and that happened in two thousand fourteen uh, for reasons that are probably not going to be surprising. But why would a country who borders a massive nuclear power is trying to make itself more? Uh, quote-unquote westernized is trying to join the European Union and so on. Why would they not have prioritized this? Yeah, I, it's it's a good question. Um, it, it's always possible. I mean, one thing to, to remember is how important multi-vector foreign policy was for Ukraine up through 2014. And by that, I mean a balance between um, prioritizing Ukraine's European interests and its Russian interests, because, you know, Ukraine's economy and, and frankly, political system has been deeply tied to Russia for a long time since its independence, really. Um, so I think there are certain moves, political moves that Ukrainian leaders simply didn't do because of the potential harm it would do to their relationship with Russia in the longer term. I mean, it's certainly um, not not that there were necessarily specific cases that this would affect, for example, but, but even the perception that a move might be turning Ukraine too far from Russia, Ukraine's political leaders were always very careful not to do anything that would antagonize Russia, um, simply because economically they've been so reliant on Russia. So I, I, that would be a, a guess. But again, it's... It's, it's hard to say. And, and we also know how many different political interests have often been involved in Ukraine. It hasn't, the, the governments have rarely been unified enough to, to make this a, a platform that everybody could get behind. For example, there's too many different political interests, too many oligarchs who have some hand in what's going on. So I would, I would, I don't know if it's stupidity or malice again in this case, but um, it just probably didn't necessarily seem relevant or seemed potentially too antagonistic to Russia to, to, to be worth the risk. I mean, that absolutely makes sense. Although, once again, it, this feels like uh, a policy of appeasement, which then comes back and, and, and hurts us later down the road. Um, 
Right. Which, how did, how did we guess, you know, nobody really guessed that, that, I mean, and, and I think it's also important to remember that, that Putin for a very long time also saw Ukraine as an important partner. So, you know, and it's only until very, it's only just very, very recently that he has come out with this rhetoric of Ukraine doesn't exist and shouldn't exist and, and isn't a state. Um, previously, he's fully recognized Ukrainian independence. So, you know, the, there's also that that balance to consider. Um, there was never any motivation to reset that balance, I guess, and and a move like um, signing onto the Rome Statute might have potentially thrown off the balance. Fair enough. So let's turn from the full international scale down to local organizations. So let's do a side by side comparison here once again. So. On Ukraine's doorstep, we have the European Union and we have NATO, which contains most of the European Union as well as most of North America. Uh, how has the response been, recognizing that Ukraine is not a member of either, although would like to be? How have these two organizations responded to the invasion? Well, the European Union has has been a pretty interesting response. We've seen a kind of effort to fast track Ukraine's membership to the EU that Poland has been a real advocate for. Um, however, we do also know that Hungary has indicated that they would veto such a move, and Viktor Orban's re-election on Sunday is pretty much secures that. Um, so, yeah, the the EU has been reasonably supportive. One of the reasons is because Angela Merkel is no longer in power and she was certainly somebody who prioritized Germany's relationship with Russia um, because of gas. And there's been a big shift in the past couple of months in Germany's position here because um, they, they, they have been a big problem for Ukraine over the past few years simply because they you know, wouldn't um, they? They were treating the Nord Stream two pipeline, which would allow Russian gas to be delivered to to Germany, bypassing Ukraine's pipelines. Um, they were treating that pipeline as as a commercial deal and not a political one. And, and Ukraine was you know, the Ukrainian position was um, that this is a huge disadvantage for Ukraine's security, which was you know, true. And Germany's had to reverse that. And so, I, and I'm using Germany as an example here because they are an important voice in the European Union. But I would say that the that response of Ukraine's immediate neighbors and Poland in particular, which of course is a member of both the EU and NATO, it's been it's been really interesting because Poland has been so immediately responsive in in opening their borders to refugees, which um, the number of refugees as of now is is over four million, and to, over two million of those have gone to Poland. That's a huge number of people. Um, so the EU has really, you know, they've suspended um, the need for documentation for Ukrainian refugees. They, the citizens of most European countries have mobilized really rapidly to help with, with humanitarian aid. Um, so those, those things, I think, are really significant. Do they change Ukraine's potential to join the organization? I'm not really sure that they do. Uh, and as far as NATO goes, it, it's sort of a similar thing, right? It's they... NATO countries have all actively condemned the Russian invasion, um, but because of the the nuclear threats that Putin has made, they're all very hesitant to do anything more substantive than that. Although the the NATO troops, NATO has shored up troops in the Baltics, uh, which is very I don't know if that's significant necessarily, but the Baltic states are of course one of the later groups of countries to join join NATO. Those are 
also post-Soviet countries, they also have much to fear from a Russian invasion. Um, and, and as we know, countries like Finland and Sweden that have never really, in the post-World War order, uh, they've never really prioritized joining NATO, and here they are considering it really seriously. So um, it's certainly, this has really caused, I think, a reassessment of what the organization of NATO is and what it does, because it previously was never, you know, it hasn't been put in this situation really um, in, in, in terms of a major, you know, global crisis with an active antagonist, a clear, you know, obvious antagonist in this case, um, who, who, who himself has used NATO expansion as an explanation for his own actions. So in that sense, it's really, um, it's really forced NATO to sort of have its own existential experience, you know, what what is this organization, what is it supposed to do, uh, and what is its obligation to a country like Ukraine that clearly wants to be a member, would not have become a member in the, in a decade or more uh, if this had not happened and, and now is um, at the at the forefront of, of protecting, you know, the entire European Union from a Russian invasion. Absolutely. And so let's then turn to the equivalent, which would be ASEAN's response. And one of the key differences, of course, you know, Emily, as you pointed out, Russian gas, there's a huge, 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 huge economic incentive. And cancelling Nord Stream hurts the Russians, but it also hurts the Germans. Um, so we have, you know, a strong economic incentive as far as the European Union is concerned to try and preserve ties with Russia. Do we see any equivalent of that, Hunter, in um, in Southeast Asia? Is there any economic incentive for these countries to support the junta? Um, not nearly on the same level. So Myanmar's economy is far smaller. Um, Thailand and China both import natural gas and oil from uh, Myanmar. And China, to a larger extent, relies on or has wider interests in Myanmar's extractive industries, including uh, timber and mining. Uh, but I don't think any country is dependent on uh, Myanmar's exports or its uh, resources. But uh, that hasn't stopped the Association uh, of Southeast Asian Nations from um, in part protecting Myanmar and, and the Myanmar military, is what I mean, uh, based on geostrategic interests. So to simplify things a bit, Russia and China are both vying for influence in Myanmar. Um, but then the authoritarian countries of Southeast Asia, including Thailand, which is a neighbor of Myanmar, um, and even now India, which is not a member of ASEAN, but next door on the West, have both uh, adopted a sort of realpolitik um, partnership defending the Myanmar junta uh, and, and maintaining cooperation with the Myanmar military in the case of India based on geostrategic interests. Uh, in India's case, that's largely um, not due to economic reasoning, but because Myanmar's military has helped India's military to eradicate separatist forces in uh, eastern Nagaland and within Myanmar's western, uh, northwestern frontier. Uh, so the military cooperation has been essential to both militaries' counterinsurgency operations. Um, and again, India's competing for influence with China. Uh, it doesn't want to see a Chinese-dominated Myanmar, and therefore, um, over the last decade, has invested significantly in, in the military relationship, 
as a way to sort of counter China's influence. Um, and India has sent representatives to um, Myanmar's military parades and naval chief, uh, India's naval chief has visited uh, Myanmar as well. And India has even given a submarine to Myanmar's Navy. Not sure what that will be used for. Uh, can't really see many practical uses for it, but I think it's emblematic of the larger strategic relationship and the importance that India has placed on uh, Myanmar as a partner. So let's 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 look at India for a little moment here, because if we're talking about Nagaland and we're talking about you know the northeastern parts of India, um, many of the regions in Myanmar which border India are not at the moment, functionally under the control of the military, or if they are, it's only a partial type of control. Chin State is very much not allied to the military. Kachin State is very much not allied to the military. Sagaing previously uh, was, you know, largely controlled by by the military and the SAC, but that seems to be the um, the point, the 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 sort of the central point from which the NUG's uh, ground forces and ground administration seems to be radiating outwards. Would those developments affect uh, India's interest in in pursuing a policy with the SAC as opposed to the NUG? Um, I don't think for India the question of who has control on the ground in those regions is affecting decision-making in Delhi. Uh, but it certainly influences India's perception of the general instability or stability uh, emanating from Myanmar. So you, you mentioned Chin and Sagaing State. Uh, both have been some of the um, heaviest hit by the military's counterinsurgency operations. And we shouldn't even, you know... Um, dress this up in insurgency language. I think the military has just gone into villages across Chin and Sagaing and burned down villages, you know, in the hundreds of households um, at a time. I mean, I'm seeing news of this every week. And Chin State is particularly heavy hit. Um, a friend of mine from Chin was telling me that a third of the homes in his village, uh, his hometown, have been burned down. Or actually, a third of the homes are still standing. I think two-thirds have been destroyed. Um, so the military has just laid waste indiscriminately to civilian residences across Chin and Sagang State. Uh, and that's really uh, fueling a prolonged um, resistance against the military. So you've seen the Chin Defense Forces and uh, People's Defense Forces groups um, emanating from Sagang and Chin have been some of the strongest actually in putting up a resistance at any cost, at great cost, to the Myanmar military. Um, and at the same time, you've seen hundreds of thousands internally displaced in Chin State, as well as thousands fleeing across the border into neighboring Mizoram in India. And interestingly, the state of Mizoram uh, and local politicians, this is really reflective of India's uh, federal democracy, federal union, and decentralized nature of, of the country's politics, because the state of Mizoram has actually been very uh, relatively welcoming to refugees flowing from Chin State into India, despite the Modi government in Delhi saying, essentially, we have a zero-tolerance policy for such refugees, saying we won't accept uh, further refugees coming from Chin State. Yet Mizoram has been, you know, um, uh, offering up some resources to protect um, those displaced by Myanmar's conflict. So you see a bit of a center-periphery divide, even within uh, neighboring India's reaction to Myanmar's conflict. 
Wow. And so let's look then to the actual sort of states of ASEAN. Uh, so we're, we're getting very mixed responses. My understanding is, you know, we've got uh, the foreign minister of Malaysia, who seems to be very open to interaction with uh, Dozim Ma'ong, who's the, the head of the, the NUG's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, while simultaneously we have, um, I think it's uh, Praxakon from Cambodia, who seems to be pushing for more engagement with the junta and more acceptance across ASEAN from the junta. So what what's going on internally in ASEAN? Yeah, um, I think you've really hit on the crux of it here. So, as I said earlier, one way to look at this division is between mainland and maritime Southeast Asia, although that's that's rather arbitrary to say it's based on geography, which it's, it's not. Um, some of the democracies, um, and I wouldn't really include Malaysia as much of a democracy. Uh, it's a functioning democracy. I guess it has a parliamentary system, um, but it's, you know, fairly authoritarian in nature. Uh, yet, I think you see the likes of Malaysia, and especially the Philippines and Indonesia, being um, some of the most outspoken in uh, terms of advocating for uh, an active uh, response from the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, as well as Singapore, uh, who has advocated for a, a strong diplomatic response to prevent the Myanmar military from sending its representatives to ASEAN summits, for instance, um, and saying that the military needs to stick to the five-point consensus, which was agreed roughly one year ago uh, at an ASEAN foreign minister's meeting or a special summit um, on Myanmar. And uh, then, as I alluded to earlier, the authoritarian mainland, primarily mainland governments of Southeast Asia, including Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, uh, have in Thailand, of course, have been largely silent uh, or protective of the Myanmar junta. And you mentioned Cambodia. Um, so this year, Cambodia's chair of ASEAN and therefore has nominated or, or has the right to put forward its own special envoy to Myanmar. Last year, it was Brunei, and Brunei has a special envoy to Myanmar. So he and Prime Minister Hun Sen have adopted very soft language generally in a sort of soft, a light touch when it comes to um, confronting the military and have by and large just met with uh, Myanmar junta representatives. Uh, both have traveled to Naypyidaw and met with Minh Aung but have not met with representatives of the National Unity Government or the National League for Democracy. Um, Hun Sen, for instance, has said basically we want to welcome Myanmar back into the ASEAN family. We can't ostracize them forever and at the same time, we don't see an end to this crisis. I don't see any room for negotiations. So, you know, we're going to basically wait until Indonesia is chair next year for, for any real action on this, um, which is just, you know, uh, shockingly derelict in duty here um, uh, to completely overlook the responsibility of the special envoy and the mission of the ASEAN chair to bring about um, some resolution diplomatically to this crisis, which is really undermining ASEAN's um, ability to function as a cohesive whole, which it never truly had. Uh, but this time it's really an existential issue for, for ASEAN because ASEAN has been, been unable to decide which government to recognize and has barred the military from sending representatives to high-level meetings. They're still welcome at lower-level summits um, or, or fora within ASEAN, um, more programmatic and 
technical meetings. Um, but you know, this crisis is is really um, undermining the international community's perceptions of ASEAN as a credible institution and um, a body that is capable of governing its internal affairs. So, so let's look at that. Like the the five point consensus came out a while ago, and it was not particularly harsh. Uh, you know, it's a little bit vague. And then on top of that, it hasn't really been changed or updated since it originally came out. And yet we're still seeing, you know, people being murdered every single day. We're still seeing uh, more and more evidence coming out of atrocities in Myanmar. So ASEAN, by saying we want to stick to this, or ASEAN by saying we want to find a diplomatic solution, are they actually being pragmatic? Like, is there a, a, a way for them to diplomatically, politically resolve this situation, or are they just trying to sort of look like they're doing something without doing anything? Well, at this point, um, there are a few other roadmaps put forward. Um, and the importance of the five-point consensus stems from the fact that uh, Myanmar's military and Min Aung Hlaing himself, um, commander-in-chief of the Tatmadaw, signed on to and endorsed this document, um, the statement that came out of the April summit uh, last year in Jakarta. Uh, so the five-point consensus calls for restraint and dialogue among all parties, um, for the cessation of, of violence, and for the nomination of a special envoy, which we have seen. So at least one step has uh, materialized, uh, although that took from April then until September for Brunei to put forward, or, or for ASEAN to accept Brunei's um, special envoy, uh, uh, Yusuf Erewhon, to um, Myanmar at the time. So the you know the document is there in that it presents um, tangible steps that the military has agreed to. Although Min Aung Hlaing has uh, essentially invalidated that the day after he returned from the meeting. Um, almost a year ago. He's, he said, you know, their suggestions, they're non-binding. We want stability and peace first before we can actually follow through on this path. Uh, and more recently has actually said, we refuse to negotiate with any terrorists. Um, as his junta has alluded to the national unity government and various resistance forces across the country, thus undermining one of the key or central tenets to the five-point consensus. So at this point, there's very little hope that the five-point consensus offers a viable roadmap going forward unless ASEAN is able to enforce uh, more coercive measures to get the junta to um, follow through on them uh, as promised. So let's let let's focus a little bit on this because I I'm really interested in both in the Ukrainian context and in the Myanmar context the value of dialogue and of negotiation. I know that there's some very interesting stuff going on in both. Um, we'll we'll start with the Myanmar context for continuity purposes. So looking at the Myanmar junta, uh, dialogue and negotiation with them have historically not turned out well they seem to follow a policy of exceptionalism where rules bind others and can be used to punish others, but they can discard the rules whenever they would like to. And this was very evident, um, you know, with with Slork, this was very evident when um, they just sort of got up one day and decided, okay, the elections don't count. Like after the 1990 elections, when they said that by definition, 
we are in charge because we are the military. And while democracy is adorable, if you fail to elect the correct group, your democracy is invalidated ipso facto. Like this seems to be a recurring theme. And so we saw, I think it was Christine Heiser, uh, from the United Nations calling on dialogue with the military um, in, in a move that was widely panned, is there actual possibility of genuine outcomes from engaging with dialogue and, and engaging politically and, and diplomatically with the military, or will it only ever be a delay tactic for the military to win a strategic upper hand? Yeah, that's been a long-running debate uh, in Myanmar for the Myanmar sort of analytic community and diplomats alike. Um, and, and there are, of course, parallels, which I'm sure Emily will touch on with regard to the Kremlin and, and Putin's, um, you know, playing a, a skillful manipula manipulation of the international community and uh, delaying tactics, buying for time. Um, so you mentioned the 1990 elections. Uh, that's one interesting parallel now because the military, of course, has promised to hold multi-party elections in 2023, uh, free and fair elections on its terms, as it says, unlike what it sees as the uh, rigged 2020 elections, although there's no evidence of any electoral fraud, as the military has repeatedly uh, alleged. Um, so in 1990, the, the way the elections were structured, multi-party free elections, which the National League for Democracy um, competed in, the elections were essentially held, uh, and the outcome was to have um, whichever party won would put together, would have the majority uh, of seats in a constitutional referendum to write the constitution for the country's future. Um, because the country hadn't come up with a constitution since the 1974 socialist era constitution, it was going to essentially be a new era in the country's politics. But once the NLD won, the military realized very quickly what a mistake it had made and invalidated the election results um, because they couldn't imagine a future uh, in which politics was written by the opposition party. Now, uh, nearly two decades later, in 2008, the military crafted its own constitution, the 2008 constitution, which um, it continues to ref, uh, use uh, reference to um, in terms of upholding the rule of law in the country as it sees things. Um, the 2008 constitution guaranteed the military 25% of all active or parliamentary seats across the country for active duty military. Uh, it also gave three of the largest, most important ministries uh, to military command and gave the military control over an important body, the National Defense and Security Council. Um, so the military had its interests enshrined and saw itself as relatively insulated from uh, attack or um, uh, threats from other parties such as the NLD in the future. And that 2008 constitution is what guided the 2010 elections on its terms. So when 2010 came around, um, its own preferred party, the USTP, won and took over in 2011 thereby protecting its interests and sort of smoothing the transition to a semi-democratic era, um, much different from the 1990 era. And so now what we can imagine taking place in 2023, if elections actually take place, uh, the military is going to be very careful to stage manage any transition um, to more reflect uh, lessons learned from both the 1990 debacle and the 2008-2010 transition, which even though very carefully rigged to protect the military's interests, somehow still weren't enough for Min Aung Hlaing, who decided that 
um, the NLD's continue, uh, continued hold on power was a threat to his personal interests. Absolutely. So let's then look at the parallels. Uh, Emily, we, we're seeing some very, very interesting things going on with regard to negotiations. I mean, we've seen Zelensky pushing very hard to join NATO and join the European Union. Uh, and we've seen a lot of, you know, a few months ago, uh, a lot of bluster and saying, no, Russia does not have the right to stop us from joining NATO. Now we see a willingness to concede on that point. We're seeing, I think, Zelensky demanding that if there are to be negotiations, they have to be held directly with Putin. Um, is there going to be value in this? Can they come to a resolution? I... I, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, everything you've said is accurate, but the problem is not Zelensky's willingness to make concessions. The problem is Vladimir Putin's good faith. I mean, every promise that Russia has made so far has gotten broken um, when it benefited Russia to, to break it. So, you know, and, and that includes things like promise to evacuate civilians from besieged cities like Mariupol. Um, those were supposed to be agreed upon things that, that then couldn't happen because Russia decided not to. So I think it's, um, I, I think it's right for Zelensky to continue to negotiate. Um, he has said that any real concession, not the, not necessarily the question of, of Ukraine's future in NATO, um, but the actual fact of any territorial concessions, that will have to be decided in Ukraine by referendum. And I can tell you from, from the majority of people I've spoken to, um, they are not going to accept any territorial concessions in order to, to get peace. Um, that's just a, a general position that I, I fear feel is is pretty common among most people um you know i think it's also important to just remind everybody that ukraine has been neutral ukraine was not in nato in 2014 when russia invaded them in the first place um so so ukraine's promise of neutrality guarantees nothing ukraine was also you know it gave up its nuclear weapons in 1994 according to the budapest memorandum in exchange for presumably the protection of its security by the United States, by the UK, and by Russia, that has also been violated. So Ukraine is in a in a in a position where the the onus seems to continually be on Ukraine to continue to negotiate. But why on earth would they negotiate with any of the current actors? None of those actors have shown themselves to be interested in preserving Ukraine's sovereignty, no matter what they have promised. So, so while, yes, certainly a negotiation for peace by diplomatic means is desirable, that would be a wonderful thing to have happen. But who can Ukraine trust at this point to make sure that that does happen? Um, why, why would Ukraine trust Russia, let alone, you know, the, the countries that have abandoned it in the past? Uh, and that's why we're seeing this discussion of third countries such as Turkey or Israel being involved in some of the negotiations. These are countries that don't have that history, um, that bad reputation in Ukraine of abandoning them in their time of need. I don't know if those are really feasible options. Turkey and Israel both have great interests in having good relationships relationships with Russia. So that could be a different kind of disadvantage for Ukraine if those are the countries that are, are representing the negotiations. Uh, but it's certainly something to consider as, as Ukraine's pleas for more aid and, and military aid from Europe are falling on deaf ears. So, I mean, it's a pretty bleak um, situation. But the, the core question really is, with these, like you, you seem to be of the of the position that negotiations are a good thing in general. If we can do them, if we can do them well, they're a good thing to do. Do you have fear 
that the Russians would simply hide behind negotiations. Clearly, the, the invasion is not going as they planned. The, the Russian military invasion is not going as abysmally as a lot of Western propaganda would have us believe, but it's not going to plan. Could it be a delay tactic? Yes, absolutely. I, I, yes. I mean, that's kind of related to, to what I said before. I mean, there's no reason to believe Russia's being serious about any of this. So I, I'm fearful that they're using this to secure some kind of concession from Zelensky while they are repositioning, as we know that they are right now, in order, you know, maybe they'll they'll use this as a concession, get a concession from Zelensky that Ukraine will preserve its neutral status, and then Russia will reinvade with vigor the eastern territories, and, and then Ukraine will have no course of action in response to that in terms of getting any international support. So I just, I mean, I remember reading an article, you know, February 20th or something like that, where Emmanuel Macron had said something like, Putin promised he won't escalate the situation, you know, and I believe him. And then Putin goes and escalates the situation. I mean, European leaders at this point also should know better than to trust anything Vladimir Putin says, whether or not that will push them to actually do something to, to help Ukraine negotiate better or a better deal that remains to be seen. Absolutely. So, look, we, we've gone through the international, we've gone through the political, we've gone through the judicial, we've gone through the diplomatic. So let's get into the actual nuts and bolts of it. Myanmar and Ukraine both are countries which have overwhelming uh, support for democracy and democratization. They want to progress. They want to move away from crony capitalism. They want to move away from dictatorships. And as a result of that, both of them are currently embroiled in literal, not figurative, armed conflict where people are dying every single day. Civilians are dying every single day. Um, we cannot avoid that. So let's start with Ukraine. There has been support for the Ukrainian uh, defense of the nation. There have been shipments of weapons, um, but obviously we have not seen any deployments of troops and, and even the concept of a no-fly zone is being uh, skirted very widely uh, with people saying that that could trigger World War Three. So Emily, broad stroke, what has been the international support for the military operations? So far, well, we, we really, to answer this question, we do have to go back some ways because it's one of the things that the, the, one of the reasons that there hasn't been, I think, a huge response to support Ukraine with more troops and more equipment is because many countries have been helping Ukraine's military reform since about 2015. Um, and that has been some actual equipment that we know of, but that's also been with training. That's also been with, for instance, Ukraine received large shipments of drones that it didn't, nobody knew how to use them. So people are being trained to use drones. We've seen that those have been really, really effective against the Russian incursion. Um, so there's different ways. The, the military aid for Ukraine's military isn't a new conversation. It's been on the table for, for years and the different, um, the, the different levels of commitment that the United States, for instance, has shown, you know, yes, Ukraine is asking for more actual substantive military equipment right now, 
But we can also argue that the United States commitment to training and updating the capacity of Ukraine's existing military since 2015 has been equally as important, if not even not more important. I guess we can't say more important than actual military equipment, but it has been essential in Ukrainian military success that is absolutely unexpected, especially by the Russians who don't seem to know how effective that training was. And then as far as um, the territorial defense units and other kinds of volunteer militia groups that some in some places are serving as military units, for instance, in Mariupol, the, it's territorial defenses that are responding in addition to the Ukrainian military. And then in other places, those territorial defense units are working with things like evacuating civilians from, from places that are besieged. The response has been largely crowdfunded. Um, you know, those, those units are raising money uh, and lots and lots of people across across the world are donating to those to, to help people get those milita- that military equipment that they need um, as well as you know tactical medical kits medical supplies so the the military aid question um, it isn't I think it's important to say it's not just limited to what what equipment people are are your countries are giving to Ukraine but what has been built over the past you know eight years really um, and 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 by the way I would add that Turkey is also another country that did give Ukraine some of these drones that were used to, to destroy Russian tanks um, so again just going back to the question of where does a, a country like Turkey lie in this conversation about um, negotiating for you know um, peace or, or any kind of settlement in Ukraine they've certainly got different interests as well and they've they've shown different positions in the past I mean that's <laughs> it's sort of Oddly uh, opposite, considering Turkey's role in um, the missile crisis that in turn precipitated the Cuban missile crisis. So it's a back to old times in some well, ways. Yeah, and and the other thing that Turkey has got a kind of interesting peripheral role here is that Turkey actually um, has has made clear that the 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 fate of the Crimean Tatar population that was displaced from the Crimean Peninsula after the Russian invasion and annexation, Turkey is very concerned about that. That was an important ally for them. Um, that that has been seen as one of the reasons that perhaps Turkey would take a more Ukrainian side because the Ukrainian government has long uh, given the Crimean Tatars more political autonomy. Um, and I'm sort of just waiting to see how that one plays out because I think that, that position is very interesting. Well, that's fascinating. So... So then, Hunter, let's let's turn to Myanmar. Now, obviously, a very different situation. Uh, Ukraine, we have an armed military with Ukrainian you know, flags on their shoulders. Um, in Myanmar, we've seen the development of the Myanmar military through Russian imports and Chinese imports and eclectic purchases across the world. What sort of support are we seeing for whether it's the EAOs, the, the pre-existing ethnic armed organizations, or the uh, PDF groups, mm-hmm. People's Defense Forces, that have formed since the coup? Uh, well, logistically, there's very little support for the EAOs and PDFs. The international community has not, um, for better or worse, has not taken sides uh, to support um, either the Myanmar military or the PDFs and the armed groups across the country. Uh, so there were fears early on that this conflict would spin into something like uh, a, a proxy war on the on, along the lines of Syria, uh, with Russian support for the military, and uh, I don't know whose support for the PDFs and ethnic armed groups, that hasn't really materialized. Uh, although the EAOs, of course, some of them do rely on material support from Chinese weapons um, coming across the border, 
whether <clears throat> that has the tacit or uh, outright um, support from uh, Beijing is, is disputed, but um, I, I, that's the only sort of internationalization of the uh, arms flows to the resistance in the country. Um, so the EAOs actually have been supporting the PDFs uh, in their, which are relatively the, the newcomers here. Um, and many of those PDFs are, their ranks are filled by civilian fighters, um, which of course is a bit of an ironic um, or a, a non sequitur. Um, the, the idea of civilian fighters, by that I mean um, civilians from places like Yangon and Mandalay that have gone to the jungles of Karen State and other, elsewhere to take up arms to fight against the military. And some EAOs have been more willing to give training uh, and weapons or allow um, collaboration with these PDFs, um, which remain you know, relatively loose-knit across the country and reliant on um, training and weaponry from these EAOs, uh, which don't have formal partnerships with the PDFs. So it's not so much a proxy war as the military has overwhelming advantage because it continues to enjoy material support from Russia uh, and China, although with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the fear is now that Russia's military weaponry will be going uh, purely to domestic uh, resupplies and less to places like Myanmar and the military, which is reliant on Russian weaponry, and particularly aircraft. So Myanmar's military has actually been suffering severe setbacks across the country on the ground, surprisingly, and much like the sort of uh, situation we've seen in Ukraine with the asymmetric advantage um, not exactly playing out to predictions. And the PDF have managed to, or have claimed to kill um, thousands of Tabmana troops at this point um, and scores of uh, military soldiers on the field from time to time in sporadic attacks or prolonged um, uh, engaged uh, holdouts of villages and strategic uh, locations uh, where they have bases set up. But um, the military, because it's suffered these setbacks, is more reliant on air support to go in and essentially just bomb, firebomb um, its enemies. And the military, uh, by and large, is um, uh, is equipped with Russian helicopters and fighter jets. So the relationship with Russia, um, of course, is very important for the Myanmar military. But given Russia's own internal preoccupation or external preoccupation with the Ukraine conflict, um, I think that uh, it's, it's entirely conceivable that Myanmar's military might soon find that it has nowhere to go for the logistical support, resupply, um, and technical uh, replacements that it needs for certain parts that it's uh, Air Force relies on to enjoy the continued advantage over the ground forces um, uh, that have really sprung up around the country to contest the military's hold on power. Hmm. So, the, you know, at the risk of getting uh, too strategic and too logistical, um, we have dual concerns with regard to Myanmar. Number one, when the dust settles, an armed population with, you know, pistols and rifles under every bed, Obviously, this is a situation that is best avoided, but is something that 
we're sh- drifting towards because uh, black market arms dealers funneling weapons across the border is how a lot of these organizations are getting their hands on materiel. The second concern is, as you've pointed out, the military is is relying overwhelmingly and increasingly on aerial superiority, occasionally ground armor, but they, that's not quite mobile enough for their needs. So air superiority, helicopters and things like this. In an ironic return to... Um, Previous conflicts, including Russia, we're seeing the the Mi-35 Hind, uh, the same basic helicopter the Russians used in Afghanistan, and this could be uh, this could be an excellent opportunity to provide the Myanmar people with things like Stinger missiles or javelins, because those a are used once and then discard. They don't contribute to a to a growing stockpile of weapons in the nation. And number two, they can actually start making a dent. Uh, Mi-35 goes for about $36 million brand new. Um, a Stinger missile nowadays goes for about 120000 So it could be an economic dent as well as a materiel dent. And, and I believe that we have seen shipments of, of these types of uh, weapons to the Ukrainians. Why do you think there's no interest in, in delivering these to Myanmar? Well, um, I think, for one, Myanmar's conflict is less understood. Uh, There are over a dozen different um, armed resistance groups within the country. Um, These conflicts, many of them date back to uh, the independence of the country in the late 1940s. Um, And the conflict is also, it's far away uh, from Western capitals and, and, you know, the likes of... um, the U.S. and, you know, uh, NATO countries. But at the same time, I think there's uh, a fear, which is legitimate, that arming various resistance groups would uh, only exacerbate conflict in the country and lead um, to sort of a new Cold War-type proxy battle uh, on on Asia's mainland, which um, could easily uh, spin out of control in unpredictable directions. Well, and, and, you know, of course, the ethical concern is, is that, you know, uh, contributing weaponry will only prolong the fight and uh, lead to greater uh, uh, civilian deaths, which I think is, is a major reason you see put forward for the uh, hesitancy to arm Ukraine against Russia as well. So, yeah, so I just wanted to ask Emily about that point. Is uh, How much is that playing into the discourse with regard to giving weapons to to the Ukrainians? Because there certainly has been flow of weaponry. Um, are people saying this could turn into a, a, a proxy conflict between East and West that goes on for years? It's, I, I, it's, I, I don't think I would characterize it like that um, at this point because in particular, at least now, of the hesitation on, on the part of NATO to get involved. Um, it This is clearly, you know, I think, well, I think if we go back to kind of the, the a little bit before the invasion began, when Putin was claiming that this was going, this was really about Ukraine's not joining NATO, then I think a lot of people were framing it as a kind of proxy or as, as the, the fight between East and West, the fight between democracy and dictatorship playing out in Ukraine. Now it seems much more clear to most of us that this is always, it was always about Ukraine's right to exist at all um, and and that, that Putin will clearly stop at nothing um, to stop Ukraine from existing. So it, it, 
I mean, maybe in five years from now, we'll look back and see it as the beginning of, of, of a, you know, as a proxy war that developed into something worse. I'm not sure. I think right now, while we're in the heat of it, there's, there's too much to, um, you know, there's, there's too, too many uncertainties in terms of how this will play out in the long term that to really be able to say for sure how it's going to unfold, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't rule anything out at this point. Okay, so I want to. I want to just now move to the final sort of broad uh, area that I want to explore, and that is the reasons that we're viewing these conflicts so differently. I mean that throughout this we've seen so many similarities between the two conflicts, so many similarities in terms of uh, their political histories and and uh, ongoing uh, armed conflicts within the nations. So. With regard to Myanmar, we're just not seeing as much outrage. We're not seeing the outcry. We're not seeing the passion. With regard to Ukraine, uh, we've seen, as as you said, Emily, was it you said two million refugees have now gone into Poland alone? That's that's right. That's I mean th- that is absolutely obscene. Um, you know th- those are refugee numbers we saw from the Iraq invasion fleeing into Syria. Um, we're talking about massive, massive, massive movements of people, and and they're being welcomed largely by the Polish people. Correct. That's that's right. That's right. For the and you know, I, I've heard a lot of a lot of people who have studied both humanitarian situations and Poland before show a lot of surprise about this and suggest or suspect that there this this hospitality is going to run out so you know we'll see how long it goes we'll we'll see there's also a lot of indication that ukrainians who have left don't don't intend to stay for very long they would like to return back to ukraine so again we're in one of those situations where there's so many moving pieces that it's hard to say um what the long-term response is going to be and and whether or not what's happening now is really sustainable okay and so that notwithstanding um, that issue, you know, most most of the European Union, most of Europe itself, uh, up to and including the United Kingdom, all the way at the the far end of the the continent, um, seem to be very welcoming. With, with the possible exception, obviously, of of Hungary and and Orbán has been called the traitor of Central Europe by Poland, traditionally a longtime ally um, of Hungary, but. Um, Fortunately, Hungary is, is a reasonably small player in all of this, so the impact is not huge. By contrast, though, uh, refugees coming out of Myanmar are having a very difficult time obtaining refugee status. Um, the prospect of return is not great at the moment, and many of those refugees have to cross the border into predominantly Thailand illegally, where they have to pay massive bribes to be given any form of documentation, and or they run the consistent risk of being arrested and being forcibly um, repatriated. So again, we're seeing a huge difference in the international response. Does this come down to, um, Hunter, a difference in how clear the evidence is for crimes and atrocities in Ukraine versus the evidence for crimes and atrocities in Myanmar? That's possible. Um, I think, by and large, uh, conflicts and humanitarian crises in Southeast Asia still don't really trickle outwards um, to the mainstream media and and general international awareness um, like a European conflict will. Um, And, you know, this coup caught many by surprise and gained international headlines for, for, you know, weeks and perhaps months 
uh, but slowly faded from uh, the radar as the American uh, disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan gained headlines um, and other world crises now Ukraine have cropped up. Um, personally, you know, to compare Ukraine and Myanmar, I, I'm um, heartened by the international support for Ukraine and, and uh, condemnation of, of Russia's invasion, but surprised actually at the sort of pathos and how much uh, passion it's aroused um, around the international community. And I'm disappointed but not surprised by the lack of attention, sustained attention on Myanmar's crisis, um, because it's extremely dire. The country's taken a giant leap backwards economically. You know, people are starving and the World Food Program's unable to deliver food and emergency relief supplies to places like Chin State where the conflict is raging. And the military is essentially holding people hostage to um, starve. And it, it's an incredibly sad situation. Um, but then again, you know, the, the likes of the New York Times and Washington Post, the mainstream media in, in the United States, and even in Australia, where I am, uh, much closer to Southeast Asia, it's just never really featured prominently uh, or shown a spotlight on Asia's conflicts. I mean, around the time of the Rohingya crisis and the genocide that was taking place, there was some great investigative reporting being done with photos and documentary evidence of the military's crimes against humanity. But uh, when it comes to the coup, I think you see... You know, Myanmar has been Myanmar netizens have been very engaged online, uh, using Twitter and Facebook to promote their promote awareness of their cause and the suffering in the country. Um, but I think with Ukraine, you just have a level of digital activism that far surpasses that. You know, you have, for instance, uh, a signal which was created by two uh, Russian expatriates um, and Ukrainians, uh, really selling their cause online or at least connecting with the international community in a different way. I think partly that's just because geographically Southeast Asia is relatively, um, I don't think isolated is the right word to describe Southeast Asia's geography, given how central it is to the sort of global flow of commerce and um, the connection of the Pacific Ocean. But at the same time, for some reason, uh, Western audiences just aren't as concerned or preoccupied with um, these sort of faraway conflicts taking place in Southeast Asia. And, you know, maybe they're exoticized a bit. Uh, we, we hear about drug lords and, you know, um, uh, trafficking and, and rare species and uh, people fighting in the jungle. And it's just sort of more along the lines of the Vietnam War and distant conflicts and not connected to as viscerally perhaps as the front lines of Europe and, um, which bears all the hallmarks of a world war um, or world war histories. Um, but I don't really have a good way to explain why people have not taken up Myanmar's cause to the same extent. So we'll, we'll look at a couple of things. So one thing I want to look at here is, um, Emily, how is the information coming out of Ukraine? Are we looking at, like, what would be the split between state media uh, foreign media who are operating within Ukraine and private citizens who are just recording things on their phones and uploading it. I'm not. I'm not sure what the official split would look like. Um, there's a. I think there's a distinctive split in terms of Ukrainian language sources, um, of which there are some that are, you know, um, public. You know, like 
the, the sort of public radio. Um, and then there's also the Ukrainian government sources that are reporting a lot and they're, they're translating a lot into English. And then there's independent media sources in Ukraine that are doing a lot of reporting in Ukrainian. And then in addition to that, there's independent sources within Ukraine that publish in English and, and namely here, the Kiev independent, um, that's a crowdfunded independent source that has had reporters on the ground, um, that they're the reporters who used to write for Kiev post, um, who split off from that. And, and so they already have a great infrastructure of information sharing. And that's also in addition to large numbers of foreign journalists who are covering things on the ground as well. Um, and I, w- I would say it's important that there are, and obviously, uh, you know, I don't know enough about Myanmar to be able to say if there's a parallel here or not, but there already were many English language journalists in Ukraine who are now doing two things. They're in Ukraine covering what's happening and they're amplifying the voices of their Ukrainian journalist colleagues who may or may not be publishing in English to make sure their coverage gets heard. So I think it's kind of a, it's a combination of factors here where you have a really savvy media infrastructure that was developed in the wake of the Euromaidan protests in 2014 where Ukrainians really reinforced the functionality of independent media. And, and I would really, um, as per Natalia Gumenyuk, who is one of one of the most important journalists in Ukraine these days, who, who kind of cautions us against thinking about citizen journalists because um, it's really trained journalists, professional journalists who are doing the coverage and they're they're getting their 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 stories out, not just in the traditional platforms of publications, but on Twitter. You know, you, if you follow Ukrainian journalists on Twitter, they're sharing even more than what they're publishing in stories. So there's this element of kind of Ukrainians learn from those protests how to use not just the actual existing media institutions, but also social media to, to get the word out and, and, and Twitter and, and Facebook have been really active in terms of those protests. And now Telegram is also a really important part of that story. Um, but all of those things already existed in Ukraine. Those infrastructures already existed. Ukrainians did a lot of work to, 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 build those to make sure that independent journalism was institutionalized after Euromaidan. Um, So for them right now, it's not necessarily so much about build, you know, building new networks. They've already got the networks and they already know how to get this information out. So they're just really taking advantage of that. And people are obviously listening. So just as a curiosity, like on that point, um, I know you've mentioned that the, the story broke recently of uh, of the evidence that we're seeing in, in, in Bucha and, and uh, in and around Kiev. Um, and, you know, I, I saw the headline of, uh, you know, a torture chamber uh, was located underneath, a, I, I believe it was a, uh, was it an asylum? It was like a children's um, sanatorium, like a health center, oh, right, health right. retreat. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, horrific stuff, but so where did that information, like who put that information into the ether? Was that a Ukrainian government uh, publication or was it people who just went in and said, oh my God, what is going on and posted that to the internet? In that case, I believe, and in some of these cases, what has happened, and I, I'm not 100% sure the actual origin point of that particular story, but in a lot of these cases in Bucha, we have seen people um people posting 
or sharing photos, sharing videos of acquaintances or, or inhabitants of these villages, those that footage has gotten confirmed by the Ukrainian military. And so that's the sources that are being put out by the Ukrainian government as the kind of official acknowledgement of what's happening. And then we have seen the response of open source, open access investigators, not just we've seen the report from New York Times, but also Bellingcat. So these other institutional, these other media infrastructures that know how to uh, verify information, they've gone in and use satellite imagery and, and crowdsourcing of, of footage and information and confirmation. And we also know that these stories are being verified by eyewitnesses. So we actually have this kind of multi-vector verification of, of things that are happening. Um, and the Ukrainian government right now, I would really give them, you know, really commend them on really doing their due diligence as much as they can to make sure the information they release has been verified so that they're, you know, taken seriously because they understand the stakes when they're claiming that something has happened. It is essential that that thing that they're claiming is true because any holes that can be poked in their story are going to absolutely be exploited by Russian propaganda narratives or Russian state media. Um, So I think they're really doing uh, an important job here by kind of confirming what they see. So, for example, we know that with the Bucha claims, the Russian media was claiming, oh, they, the Ukrainian soldiers did this and left these bodies in their wake. But because there was so much footage, you could actually identify how far back bodies had been sitting in the street for weeks at a time, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, these are horrible things that people are being asked to confirm, but, but the Ukrainian government is doing a good job of making sure that those claims can be confirmed. I mean, th- you know, that's brilliant work. And, and I think this is a really important question, like, Hunter, are there any lessons here for the Myanmar people and more importantly for the NUG? I think there's a general feeling that the NUG is not doing as well as it could be with regard to information flow, with regard to accountability to the people, with regard to spreading the message internationally. Is there anything that they should be doing differently? Well, it's hard for me to say. I mean, um, I'm not really positioned to offer advice on how to... um, spread their message and best leverage the international community's resources and attention. Um, but that said, I think perhaps, you know, based on what Emily was just saying, if anything, the documentation and sort of spread of Myanmar's, um, uh, the, the crimes and, and, and just atrocities taking place across the country has been a bit more grassroots and decentralized, um, much of the footage on cell phones, for instance. Um, some of this is authenticated by independent reporters in Myanmar. Um, but the military's attacks on those uh, credible institutions uh, of the press has really debilitated um, the ability of uh, journalists and reporters to fact-check and um, document these in real time. Um, it's persecuted... Uh, countless journalists and imprisoned them for incitement, uh, for instance. And that that's just to say that anything emerging online is primarily from sort of citizens' uses of smartphones and less from the journalistic side. Um, and then it's immediately taken up and reshared, retweeted uh, countless times to amplify that message on Twitter, which is great. Um, but I think that sort of overwhelming wall of noise at some point loses the sort of fine-toothed documentation uh, aspect that you might see coming out of 
the Ukraine conflict. And that's that's speaking in, in very general terms. I don't want to say that it's not credible what you're seeing in Myanmar, but both sides, uh, and both sides is an oversimplification here. You see, um, you know, the military, for instance, reusing old footage to sort of say, you know, uh, the resistance groups and PDFs are terrorists and, and doing this and that. Um, and, you know, that muddies the waters to a certain extent because then you don't know uh, how much footage is real or what's not uh, coming out of this conflict. And I wouldn't say that the PDFs and people in Myanmar are doing the same thing. Um, but when everyone's sort of shouting and, and posting photos and videos to try to say the other group is committing mass atrocities, um, it's really difficult to separate out what's authentic and what's um, uh, sort of doctored. Um, but it's also just not curated in a way that's mm. immediately legible to international observers. I mean, I think that's a very fair criticism. I think it's something that needs to be looked at. It, it, it seems to be much more well organized and centralized, at least on the Ukrainian um, half. Um, so let's let, let's turn to this big um, question, and that'll probably be the last thing that we that we delve uh, deeply into because I am conscious of everybody's time. Uh, and this is not to not to to make allegations of racism, but the fundamental emotional difference. Uh, we're looking at a situation right now where we've had coups in so many countries. I think 2021 saw uh, coups in five different countries, including Myanmar. And we don't speak about them uh, very often. And it seems to be that the Western world, which is to say Europe and the Anglosphere, um, don't really focus on Myanmar. And yet there's the massive outpouring for Ukrainians. And I want to, to pose this uh, to Emily first. When did Ukrainians uh, start being us and stop being them? Because nobody was all that passionate back in 2014 when they were literally invaded? Yeah, this is a question I've been asking myself as well, because I I was outraged in 2014. I was in Ukraine at the time that Russia invaded, and it was truly appalling to experience that and to have you know it downplayed by most of the world. Um, so I don't, I really, I really don't know. I mean, I think it's fair to say that we can both use this experience as a, you know, seeing the response to Ukraine, we can remain compassionate and empathetic and support the Ukrainian claims for their sovereignty and independence and, and really feel for what's happening at the same time that we can be critical of how we've responded in the past. I mean, there is an absolutely an element, I think, of, of racism there, of, of hierarchies of what we think a democracy really looks like. You know, Ukrainians are, are, are largely and certainly not universally, but the perception of Ukrainians is that they're largely white and Christian. The refugees streaming across the border are mostly women and children. Um, there's a certain... I, I think likeness that people can feel and you can, you can feel that feeling and also recognize that that past responses to crises have been inadequate. So we can think, you know, hold both of those feelings at the same time. Um, 
And it's odd, you know, over the past eight years, um, it's been difficult to get people to care about this war that has been happening. And it hasn't, I, there's a perception that it's a civil war or or that, that it's a cold, you know, frozen conflict or something. That's not true. I mean, this war has been going on in Ukraine for eight years. There were casualties all the time soldiers being killed all the time. Um, and yet it's it's much more obviously dramatic at this point. I, certainly the invasion that, that happened on February 24th is at a different scale than the previous one. I don't want to downplay that. But I also think, to be honest with you, the, the perception and image of Vladimir Putin as a person plays into this as well, because we have been this guy has been in power for 20 years. We have known him as the significant and sometimes villainous figure throughout history. And now he's done something that completely crosses a line, but also completely confirms what Ukrainians have been saying about him for so long and what a lot of us have been saying about him for so long. So some of the empathy, I think, also comes from that it's very easy to point out who the bad guy is in this scenario. Um, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine. That is a that is absolutely supposed to be unacceptable uh, in the 21st century, in the post-war, post-World War II era, in the post-Cold War era. Um, and, and so to some extent, I think it's also just a kind of clear, you know, knowing knowing who has has done the violation that makes people more sympathetic to ukrainians whether they'll they'll continue to see them as us after this you know again i don't know um i certainly have have felt that there was always a hierarchy a kind of european hierarchy where ukraine was kind of not considered quite europe um you know no matter how european people identified themselves as so so that's um that to me was has certainly been kind of a surprise and so by contrast, um, obviously, Hunter, you've spent the majority of your time looking at Myanmar. Have you seen any change or any shift, uh, both with regard to the way that the West views Myanmar or or Asian people in general, uh, or a shift with regard to the way that uh, the Asian community views Myanmar? Well, um, for the Asian community, uh, the ASEAN family, so to speak, I think uh, I'll start there. Um, Myanmar's sort of always been a headache uh, for ASEAN. Back in the 90s, uh, ASEAN was um, really uh, one of the main vehicles for criticizing and encouraging uh, the military to reform. Uh, and in the 2000s, it saw an opening to do so um, when uh, the military put forward its um, roadmap to discipline flourishing democracy and sort of had started hinting at the possibility of democratic change to come. ASEAN uh, was really um, uh, at the forefront of these efforts to push Myanmar to follow through on that uh, path. But uh, now we see sort of the relapse to the familiar, um, you know, coup, internal violence, just the military letting the floodgates open as far as um, its own troops committing violence against civilians. Um, and ASEAN has either refused to look closely at this and turned its head or, um, you know, vocally supported the junta. Um, or, you know, for those countries that have been critical of Myanmar um, and the military's atrocities, um, they find themselves unable to hold the military to account due to ASEAN's uh, lack of enforcement mechanism. Uh, but Asia more widely, I mean, you have the likes of, you know, China's a whole lot more powerful now than it was um, a 
a couple decades ago and with Chinese backing and India's uh, implicit support for the military, Myanmar is actually in a much more favorable, sorry, Myanmar's military is in a much more favorable position now than it was uh, previously when it chose to democratize uh, to an extent um, in order to alleviate economic sanctions and improve its positioning on the world stage back in 2010. Um, it, it saw doing so as, you know, for one, one reason was to escape the sort of uh, Chinese dominance uh, of its uh, economy and reliance on, on Beijing for um, uh, patronage. But um, as far as the West goes, I, I'm not sure if there's been a fundamental shift because for so long Myanmar has been a very far away problem. And that's both been a, a blessing and a curse. For US policy, for example, Myanmar has by and large been a cause for human rights and democracy concerns and democracy proponents within Congress uh, to advocate for, you know, uh, outright regime change to see a democratic opening in Myanmar. Um, rather than the sort of uh, realpolitik you see tied to mostly to countries like Thailand and U.S. allies that the United States doesn't want to support, and especially in the Middle East, whose oil and military bases it relies on, you know, Saudi Arabia comes comes to mind, although that there's been a sea change in perceptions uh, within Washington towards Saudi Arabia since the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, but that said, with Myanmar, uh, the U.S. doesn't have a lot of influence, given that it's so far away. There's not a lot of trade and investment. There are few people-to-people ties. Um, and so I think the perception is this is not our problem to deal with. And that's why you've seen the likes of the United States, China, and the European Union backing the ASEAN uh, five-point consensus as the best means for a diplomatic solution going forward. And so just just on that, like, I'm wondering, would this be different if Myanmar had been invaded externally, if let's say it had been, you know, China um, pushing to to capture the north of the country, would that have shifted the dialogue? Do you think would people suddenly be super sympathetic to Myanmar as opposed to viewing it as a just internal political conflict? Yeah, um, that's an interesting hypothetical. I think absolutely, uh, at least in Washington, in this, in this era of great power competition and, and overwhelming focus on China as sort of the preeminent national rival. Um, you know, uh, for instance, there's a lot of attention on Taiwan as a potential, you know, next Ukraine. Uh, there's a lot of speculation on whether China will draw lessons on uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and d- decide that they can indeed launch uh, an armed invasion of Taiwan to reclaim what they see as part of their country, uh, much like Russia and, and Putin see Ukraine. Um, you know, I'm not going to really touch on whether that's a viable scenario. I don't personally think it is. Um, I, I think, if anything, China's probably seen the fierce international um, response to confront Russia over this and probably drawn the opposite conclusions. Um, but that said, I think this simplicity of a scenario like another state uh, such as China invading Myanmar would probably be an easier message to sell domestically. Um, and, you know, there, there's 
uh, been a lot of support for Vietnam, for instance, as, as far as U.S. partnerships in Asia go, uh, blossoming because um, of the fear of the China threat. And that's an easier story to tell, uh, that China poses a threat to this little country on its doorstep um, than there's this military we don't really understand. It's got all sorts of nefarious business interests and it's once again taken over political power, but it already sort of had political control and it's just so complicated. It's impossible to sort of sell it in an elevator type speech. It sort of really speaks to the, um, the value of narratives and uh, good guy versus bad guy stories. Unfortunate, but true. Um, so look, I'm I'm very conscious of everybody's time. So we'll we'll probably start wrapping it up here. I want to thank both of you for coming on. This has been fascinating uh, for me, and I hope it will be for our audience as well. And and thank you for bearing with me as we uh, sort of navigate this new format. This is not something that we usually do, but I, I think it was fruitful. But when we and we we like to hear um, the thoughts that you want to leave the audience with something that you think the audience should know or should at least ponder going forward. So I want to start with Emily, if you have uh, any final thoughts on this discussion. Yeah. Um, I, well, thanks. First of all, I, I, this has been so enlightening for me to just think about, you know, think through the questions that you've been asking and, and I don't know, thinking about how little we all know once we are so focused on our own, own context. So, um, I think this comparison is really fruitful. Um, yeah, I, I think, um, just in general, this, unfortunately, I think is going to be a long or somewhat prolonged, you know, hard to see what's happening. I think the main, the main thing for for people who are listening who are unfamiliar with the context of Ukraine to just keep in mind is make sure that you are reading verified sources. You know, there's so there is such a deep infiltration of Russian Kremlin propaganda, not just narratives but tactics that are designed to draw people's attention away from things that are actually happening, um, and and it's really important to to not um, you know not get taken in by this alternative way of of basically this this Kremlin Kremlin tactic of trying to turn you um it's a kind of dividing technique right there's there's so much support for ukraine so kremlin kremlin tactics are to amplify stories for example of racism at the border to um for for african students who are fleeing ukraine for instance you know amplify those stories so that we all start to question whose side we should be on it's not to say that those things didn't happen it's just to say think about how stories are getting told and which narratives are being prioritized and why. Um, and I think it's, you know, that information war is a real front of this, of this war that's happening. And all of us can make individual choices to find good and correct information. And I just, I really commend the Ukrainian journalists who are, who are covering the stories, the international journalists who are covering the stories, you know, correctly and compassionately and with the help of Ukrainian colleagues. Um, I, I think we're in a really unique situation in terms of the information sphere, what we can know, what we can know for sure, and, and what narratives we are sharing ourselves from our comfortable chairs in, in, in the United States or in Australia or in Europe, I think um, we all have to kind of think about where we're positioning ourselves and, and how we're contributing. Um, but honestly, fighting the information war is something that all of us can do. And so I think I, I would just encourage anyone who's listening to just make sure that you are fighting that um, on the right side. 
Okay, thank you for that. And um, Hunter, turning to you now, do you have any thoughts that you would like the audience to consider going forward? Well, I think Emily's points were very cogent um, and eloquently expressed, and I, I think they apply in many ways to Myanmar's case as well. Um, but I don't want to repeat uh, what she said. So I would just say, with regard to Myanmar, um, I hope that listeners don't forget the tragic situation that is unfolding, continuing to unfold there. Things are not improving. In fact, they're getting worse. Um, and don't look away. You know, there are numerous other crises in the world. Um, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine has impacted global food supplies uh, around the world. But that also affects Myanmar and actually makes Myanmar's crisis even worse. Um, and so how can we support uh, that? Look, look for international organizations, uh, nonprofits to give to, but also, um, you know, for policymakers in the likes of Washington, I would say there is no reason to continue to avoid sanctioning the Myanmar oil and gas enterprise. Um, and I think uh, anyone who cares about what's going on in Myanmar and wants to stop the military um, from continuing to commit crimes against its own people should be pressing their legislators to uh, uh, advocate for sanctions against um, Myanmar oil and gas enterprise, which makes up uh, nearly half of the junta's foreign exchange income at this point, over a billion per year, an important source of revenue for the military to continue doing what it does. Um, I've already expressed how I don't hold out much hope for UN Security Council uh, action or UN action in the first place. Um, but uh, so I, that's that's why I'm calling for sort of unilateral um, how how to support uh, United States legislation. And on that note, there is the uh, 2021 um, uh, Burma Bill or the Protect Democracy in Burma Act of 2021, which is currently um, stalled before the U.S. Senate, uh, among other things, it calls on the U.S. to recognize, um, sorry, to engage with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations more. Um, we could see the uh, position of a special uh, U.S. special envoy for Myanmar. I think that would lend some momentum to any action to come, um, would be one important way of, of getting the ball uh, moving. And um, I think that uh, people should be writing their congresspersons to advocate for that bill's passage. Um, and another sort of technical point, but the National Defense Authorization Act of 2021 also includes language um, on recognizing the national unity government and seeing that body as uh, the legitimate representative of Myanmar and working to support Myanmar's uh, democracy. Um, so I think the tools are in place there for a stiffer U.S. response, and um, there's more that Western governments could do to um, have uh, a more active role beyond purely economic sanctions.
I know for a lot of podcast listeners, as soon as the fundraising requests start up, you kind of just zone out and skip ahead till it's over. But I ask that if you've taken the time to listen to our full podcasts, that you also take the time to consider our spiel. Some may assume that producing a two-hour episode wouldn't take much more time than the conversation itself. But so much goes into it. In advance of the interview, our content team reviews the biography and relevant works of the upcoming guest, and we discuss the best way to use our limited time together. After the interview is complete, the raw audio file is sent to our sound engineer who shapes it into working order. A single episode can take several full days of solid production work in the studio, which is then carefully coordinated with our content team to ensure smooth listening. Further edits and post-production magic bring the eventual episode to your ears, along with extensive written descriptions of each interview, which we publish on our blog and on social media as well. Many of these steps require an outlay of funds in some way or another. We hope that each episode helps to inform you about the ongoing crisis. And if you find it of value, we also hope that you can consider supporting our mission. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info betterburma.org. If you'd like to give it another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Калина похилилася 
чогось наша славна Україна зажурилася.